Good morning, church. Uh, you've already been welcomed, but I want to welcome you again uh, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, and to all who sin and need a Savior. Cornerstone open, opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the friend of sinners. I am glad that you're here today, and it is so good to be uh, together. I hope you have your Bibles open, or go ahead and grab a Bible, or grab your device, and go to Romans 11. We're going to be beginning in verse 11 in just a moment, uh, and you'll be able to track with me if you, uh, a lot of this sermon, instead of looking at me or looking at the screen, you want to have your head down in your Bible once we get there uh, in just a moment. We're going to go through this verse by verse, and I've divided today's unit of Scripture. Um, if you're visiting with us, we are on a journey through the book of Romans, and so we've got a unit of Scripture that we're looking at today, and I've divided this unit of Scripture into three parts, and in this first part, the concept that Paul hits strongly is this concept of, of envy or this concept of jealousy, depending on which translation you have. You may have envy, you may have jealousy, so I want to begin with just the definition of envy, I'm going to go with that. The translation that I'm preaching from has envy. Jealousy is a, another a way to translate this word. Uh, envy is a, a painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess that's that advantage, to a desire to possess that. And it's either painful or in a resentful awareness of, of that, in, that advantage someone else ha has, and, and, and I want that. Uh, that's what's being described here, whether it's translated envy or jealousy. And I had kind of a unique experience this week in seeing envy um, in, a, in a way that was not expected. I was in Texas this week visiting my dad. And as I drove around North Dallas uh, doing a variety of things, I saw bumper stickers that hit me and I think would hit you in a particular way. The bumper stickers said, don't California my Texas. <laughs> yeah. So I'm seeing these things and I mean, as I went in places, I felt really welcome, you know individually by people, but as I'm driving around, I wasn't feeling too welcome <laughs> in, uh, in Texas. And, and they got t-shirts too. I didn't see any t-shirts. Don't California my Texas. And so I think I understood what was going on, but at first I was like, okay, what, what, what's happening here? So I, I have lunch with one of my friends. My wife and I lived in Texas for three years. So we're like, you know, a little bit Texan. And we moved here in 1998 from there. We were there for three years. They didn't have these then. They didn't have Don't California My Texas spirit or bumper stickers in 1998. So I had lunch with my friend and I, I said, hey, I've been seeing these bumper stickers. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so like, are these about like we're moving here and housing prices are going up? Yes. Are these about we're moving here and the culture is changing? Yes. And, and you don't want that? No. We, 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 we don't want that. 
How does this relate to envy? There is an envy for, in Dallas and in Austin and in Plano and in North Dallas where I was, there is an envy for the way things used to be in Texas. There is an envy for the more rural parts of the state that haven't been Californiaized. And I couldn't help but think if I had moved there from California and I didn't know anybody there, uh, how unwelcoming it would be every time I drove around to see Don't California My Texas bumper stickers. Are, are, are you with me? Like, uh, that, would, that would be hard. So the kind of envy that, that Paul is writing about in this first unit of Romans 11 is a very different kind of envy. It's a very different kind of jealousy than the kind of envy that Texans have for how it used to be, or how it is in Lubbock now, or how it is in East Texas now, in the way that it used to be here, without Californians, without California housing prices, without California culture. They, they, they have this envy for that, and the kind of envy that Paul is talking about is a very different sort of envy. We're going to look at it in just a moment. Before we look at that, I want to ask you to, to, to look into your own hearts right now, to gaze into your hearts. Uh, do you have an internal awareness of something that, that someone else has, something that someone else possesses that you want? Do you envy? Are, are, are you jealous? We've all been there, right? I, I mean, we, we, we've all had this. What, what is it that you are envy? That, what is it that you envy? What is it that you are jealous of? Sometimes we are envious of the money that other people have or their physical beauty or their intelligence or their power or how they are admired by others, and we want to be admired the way this person is admired. So this is the context in which we often use the word envy or jealousy, but Paul's using envy in a very different way, or jealousy in a very different way. Let's take a look at how he uses it, and let's turn our attention now to Romans 11.11. And again, here's where you need to have your heads in your text. And we're going to be working through this verse by verse. So here he begins in verse 11 with this pattern that he often has where he, has a, he throws out a question, a rhetorical question, and then he answers it. So verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. So he asks the question, then he answers the question. So what is the question? Did they stumble? He is referring here to ethnic Israel. He is referring to the Jews in the first century who have stumbled over the Messiah. They have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So he's asking, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Are they gone forever? Is ethnic Israel going to come back to the Messiah, Jesus, who, is, who, who, who was Jewish but is the Savior of the world? Is their, is their fall irretrievable ruin? And he answers the question in verse 11, not at all. 
So, so, so there's good news here. In the first century and all of the centuries, the 20 centuries that have passed since, that there is hope for ethnic and national Israel. They are not in irretrievable ruin. Continuing on, verse 11. Rather, because of their transgression, their transgression of unbelief in the Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Salvation has come to the rest of the world. Gentiles is a fancy word for those who aren't Jewish. Salvation has come to North America and South America and Central America and Africa and Papua New Guinea and China and Australia. It has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious or to make Israel jealous. Verse 12, but if their transgression means riches, spiritual riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Look at the end of verse 12. This is important here. This is kind of a glimpse into what's coming into next week's sermon, next week's unit, that there's going to be a fullness. There is a future for ethnic Israel. There's only a remnant in the first century of Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. We've been learning about that. For those of you that haven't been here in recent weeks, we've been learning about this remnant. But there is a fullness coming. There is the entire nation is going to embrace him at some time and how much greater the riches will be of the whole world when that fullness comes. That's what verse 12 is saying. Verse 13, I am talking to you, you non-Jews, you Gentiles. Now we have to go back again to the first century Rome here, the original recipients of this. That church in Rome in the first century is mostly non-Jewish. And so Paul is emphasizing who he's talking to here. I'm talking to you, believers in Jesus, in first century Rome, and he's also talking to us today. The word of God is alive and living. And he is talking specifically here to those of you who are not Jewish in the first century and to those of us here today who are not Jewish. Verse 13, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy, to jealousy, to save some of them. Verse 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, that's what's happened in this point of history. Israel has rejected the Messiah, and the gospel has gone and continues to go to every tribe, every nation, every tongue throughout the planet, on the world. That's the mission that Jesus has given us. And he's describing how, how Israel has rejected the Messiah, most of them, and reconciliation has gone to the world. Continuing in verse 15, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So the acceptance here, I believe, is referring to something that is still yet future, where by and large, ethnic Israel will embrace Jesus as the Messiah before the resurrection of the dead, the life from the dead. This is what Paul is saying in verses 11 through 15. Doug Moo writes this. He comments on this passage. He says, don't assume that Gentile preponderance in the church means that God has abandoned his people Israel, he has not abandoned them. And there is a time coming. We don't know when it is. 
No one knows the day or the hour or when these things are going to play out. But before the resurrection of the dead, that's what I believe is being referred to before the judgment, there is going to be these great riches when the fullness comes. Not just a remnant of Jews believing, but all of them by and large believing. All of this is getting at this idea of a godly envy. And this is what is at the heart of verses 11 through 15. Paul has a heart for his unbelieving Jewish family members and friends and the whole nation of Israel to have a godly envy. Not an envy that, that's, that's rooted in the flesh. Not an envy that I wish I had the house he had. I wish I, I, I had the, the Tesla he has. I, I wish I had the mountain bike he has. But an envy for seeing this relationship that people have with their maker, their savior, their creator, that they would see the joy of God's people, the Jews, unbelieving Jews, would, would see that and want to be a part of the kingdom of God in that way. So Paul is revealing his heart for God's grace to be at work, to put a godly envy in the heart of his fellow countrymen. So this is showing the beauty and the glory of God and is a very healthy sort of envy or jealousy. I want to look at a passage with you on the screen, one of the shortest little parables in the New Testament. Let me just read it, Matthew 13. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and, and, and covered it up. So he finds this great treasure on this property, and the emphasis is on this second sentence here in this parable. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. He buys it because there's this treasure in it, and he has this joy. This is a picture of what it looks like to move into relationship with God and be a citizen in his kingdom. It's, it's the greatest treasure in all the world, and it happens, and it has always happened by faith. We don't have to, to, to do certain things to be in right relationship with God. We have to repent and believe in Jesus who died for our sins and rose on the third day and we are in relationship with him. But then what is this um, selling all that he has referring to? Well, it's referring to the cost of discipleship. Salvation is free, that is, Christ paid the price, not you or me, but when we profess faith in Christ, the life of a disciple is often hard and costly. The cost of discipleship is sometimes high. Did you look at what happened to the 12 apostles? How their lives ended? How did they end? They were killed for following Jesus. That is a high price. Selling all that he has, it is worth giving up even your life to be in relationship with God. Now, very few of us are going to experience that. But this is just another picture of the joy of life, living in relationship with our Savior, that would produce a godly envy in people who are not believing in him. And so that's what this first few verses are about. This godly envy 
a very different kind of envy, a very different kind of jealousy than what comes from my flesh and from your flesh normally. All right, did you track with me, church, through verses 11 to 15? All right. Well, let's come back to uh, our text. Well, before we get, one more verse before we get to this next unit. Um, we see the joy of living out the Christian life in the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living, living in plenty or in want. You know, every human being is looking for happiness. We tend to use the word instead of happiness, joy or, or durable joy. And that is found only in a relationship with God. While all of these other things we will not find satisfaction in, Paul found that satisfaction in the Messiah, in Jesus, and his heart is aching for his fellow Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He's learned the secret of contentment, of happiness, of durable joy, and it's the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ as Lord, and that's what he wants for his fellow Jews. That's all verses 11 through 15. I've identified three things that by God's grace... We want to see out of this unit of Scripture, and the first one is a godly envy in those who don't believe. A godly envy in those who don't believe. Maybe you're here today and you're a skeptic. The Bible is praying for you. The Spirit is praying for you. We are praying for you. If, if, if you are a skeptic here today, that you would see what it's like to live in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and have an envy a godly envy for those who do. That's what Paul is praying for in verses 11 through 15. All right, let's come to verses 16 through 21 now. Let's look at 16 through 18 to be begin. Or, or just verses 16 actually to begin. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Let's pause here for just a moment after verse 16. So he introduces these two metaphors, and he doesn't particularly identify what each of these things are referring to. So guess what? There's lots of controversy and debate about what these things are referring to. But let me tell you my understanding of, of what these refer to. So when he says, he, he first has this illustration, and both, neither of these may be very familiar with us unless you're very familiar with the book of Leviticus or Numbers, this idea of, of first fruits and dough may not be familiar with you. But I want to suggest that what this is teaching is that this whole batch is referring, the whole lump of dough is referring to the Jews as, as a nation. And, and so it's saying in verse 16, if part of the dough offered as first fruits, part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. What he's saying is at some point, again, the entire nation is going in, in the fullness, come to know Christ as Messiah. And the first fruits, I believe, is referring to, uh, along with many others, not just me, referring to the patriarchs, which we don't have really time to get into next week's unit, and I don't want to get into that, but it's mentioned in verse 28, the fathers or the patriarchs, and in other Jewish literature, the first fruits, um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those are the patriarchs, they're referred to as the first fruits or as the root and so what he's saying is if the part of the dough offered as first fruits, the patriarchs is holy, then the whole batch is holy. Then he shifts to this metaphor of a tree. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Let's look at verse 17 now. If some of the branches have been broken off, 
that is Jews who have rejected Christ as the Messiah, unbelieving Jews. That's the branches who have been broken off. And you, first century Roman church, mostly Gentiles, you, though a wild offshoot, you were not part of that nation, you were not, you're not Israelites, you're not Jewish, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, from the patriarchs. Verse 18. And here's the sole issue. Here's, here's why he's writing this. He's not just writing this to talk about the end times and to give us theology. This is why he's writing this unit. Verse 18. Do not boast over those branches. The Gentile church was getting cocky and arrogant about who they were. They're boasting about themselves and their position of faith in the Lord Jesus. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. The patriarchs support you. So just like dough, I'm not, uh, just, I'm not very good in the kitchen here. And I'm not very familiar with, with imagery from the kitchen or from dough. And I'm also not very good in the garden. And I'm not very familiar with, with grafting and, and caring for trees. Some of you might be, but boy, do I love this imagery in this passage, especially about the tree. So I looked on the internet for a picture of a tree that's, that's grafted. And so I circled. Uh, you can probably see there's quite a disparity between uh, the, the root ball and the trunk of this tree being of one species. And then above that line, they've grafted in this other species of tree, and it's become this, this one thriving uh, tree. And this is, this is related to the imagery here in this passage. But we would have a little bit more of a complicated tree, which uh, I couldn't find a picture of that, that fit this perfectly. But we would have uh, a tree that would fit the image of Romans 11. We would have this, this root ball in this trunk that's referring to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in the first century church, we had this remnant. So that would be kind of the red circle I, I drew there. And then we have all of these branches in the first century where the church is overwhelmingly non-Jewish. It's overwhelmingly Gentile. And the sinful, the fleshly problem that the Bible is dealing with here, that Paul is dealing with here, is that they have become arrogant. That they have become, they have become prideful about being the crown of the tree. And Paul's reminding them, no, look at the root. You are dependent upon the root. It is God's grace that, that, that found Abraham and called him out of this land and made him a people that would become this great crown of a tree. And so the right response is, is not to be arrogant, uh, but to be thankful for this grafting that has taken place. You know, people in biblical times, they did tree grafting. They knew about this. They knew that the strength and health and quality of the tree is actually improved when you do this. And so they had this familiarity. They would have done this. They would have known about it. And God is reminding them that he is the one who has put this tree together. And he's reminding the arrogant Gentile Roman Christians that their root goes back to the patriarchs. 
So a couple uh, translations of verse 20, which kind of gets to the, the key of how does this passage relate to our lives? It relates to our lives that, that we too become arrogant people. They were arrogant over their position over the Jews. That's what Paul's addressing. And this is where preaching gets hard. I don't know where pride is showing up in your life, where arrogance is showing up in your life. But here's just a few different translations of this last part of, of verse 20. Do not become proud, but fear. Do not be conceited, but fear. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. And this is a unique concept, this concept of fear or trembling. Now, in my mind, in English, fear mostly, again, has a really negative connotation. You've seen uh, the t-shirts, no fear. You've seen that? Like, fear's bad. Like, I don't have any fear. I'm ready to go. I'm confident. I can conquer the world. That, that, that's not the sense of fear here. This, this is a very healthy sort of fear. This, tremble, awe, reverence is the connotation that Paul is communicating to that Gentile church in the first century and that he's communicating to us. Ha have reverence and awe for this incredible God who by grace has put together the, this, this tree with, uh, by the end is going to have all sorts of different grafts. All sorts of different peoples grafted in. Don't be arrogant. Be humble and have a, a holy fear. A, a, a trembling that, that involves joy and smiling and confidence. So the Greek word here is the, is the Greek word phobos, where we get our word phobia. But if you've been attending Cornerstone for some time, you know that every word has a multiple range of meanings. And the meaning here is not this like being afraid. I come around the corner and, and God's going to get me. It's that there is this great and powerful and awesome God. And I live in gratitude and joy and an awareness of his awesomeness and his power. So this is what he is trying to get into the arrogant and prideful first century church of Rome. All right, I lost my place here. I think we're at verse 19, right? Where am I, church? Verse 19? Okay, so let's go back to 19, and then I'm going to say a little bit more about this. Verse 19. So you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. I, Gentile, could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. Why were they broken off? Because you were superior Gentiles and the Israelites were not? No, it's because they lacked faith in the Messiah. And you stand by faith. So this breeds humility. Today, we stand by faith. We are in relationship with God by faith. Not because of where we came from, whether it's from Israel or from Texas or from Papua New Guinea or from California. Do not be arrogant but have a trembling awe for this holy God. Don't be arrogant, but fear. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. In other words, look to him, persevere in your faith in him. And again, the spirit of this passage is that we do this joyfully and we do this confidently. We don't do this like trembling, thinking we're going to get zapped by lightning as we come around the corner.
So this again is where preaching gets hard. How do we have this sort of holy fear, this, this trembling that, that gives us confidence and joy in God, recognizing how awesome and powerful and infinite and other he is? This is where preaching is really hard. I, I, I don't know exactly what you need to do. I'm praying even now that the Spirit would be at work showing you if you don't have this sense of awe, of reverence. I mean, one of the things we can learn from, from maybe Roman Catholics and, and Greek Orthodox, have you been in their buildings? Have you walked into their buildings in, in, in Europe or in our cities? What, what sense do you have when you walk into their worship buildings? Ah! Oh, ah! Oh. We don't do so well with that, do we? <laughs> We've got warehouses. I, I'm not trying to put down our buildings. I'm just trying to lift up that we need an awe for God. No matter what kind of building we're in, we need a holy fear and a reverence for Him and to know He's real and to live in light of that reality. So the one concrete, practical thing I want to say to you about how to develop this trembling, this, this holy fear that's healthy and confident and joyful is to, is to be with other people who, who have that. You've seen people like that. People who, who live in the presence of God and, and, and recognize who he is. And they live accordingly with humility and awe before him. So one of my... One of my friends who's, who's with the Lord now, I got a picture of him um, up here on the stage. And this picture was taken on May 4th, 2009. So you see how good our phones were back in 2009? Can you see this picture? You can probably even barely make this out. Um, you want to dim the lights just real quick? The reason I put this picture up here is, is to see my friend Greg's smile. My friend Greg's smile. Now, you may not be able to make it out here, but... He's got no hair because he's going through chemo and through radiation. You probably can't make it out, but he, his right leg has been amputated above the knee because cancer ate away at his bone in his leg. And shortly after we moved from Cool here to Auburn, I went to Houston to visit my friend Greg. That's where this picture's taken. And we're hanging out one night as he was after he'd gone through chemo or radiation treatments. And Greg uh, says, you know what we should do? We should go to this bar. This is in a bar. It's open mic night. And Greg was really creative. And he wasn't a very good singer. And he wasn't a very good guitar player. So that tells you something about him, that he's going to an open mic night. And he had an awareness that he wasn't very good at playing the guitar and wasn't very good at singing. But he was very smart, he was very creative, and he wrote this song about Costco, about going to Costco and the absurdity of the size of the things that we buy at Costco and how long, and it just kind of rhymed. He's like, hey, let's go to this bar, there's an open mic night, and, and he sang this Costco song at this bar in Houston after going to his radiation treatments. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because there's a smile on his face. He, he, he didn't preach the, the facts of the gospel there, but at the, after he sang this song and, and he shared a little bit of what he was doing in Houston, he was there for MD Anderson Cancer Center, he shared that with the folks in the bar that night. And as he's finishing singing the song, he, he, he shared that he was happy to be there 
and that he was a follower of Christ. I don't remember exactly what he said. He just said something very basic, letting everybody there know he was a believer. And man, we couldn't get out of that place that night, not because of his singing, not because of the silly song, but, but people wanted to, to find out about this guy who has no hair and no leg and has come to a bar at night to sing and encourage and bless a bunch of people smiling and, and, and mention that he's a Christ follower. Greg had a sense of awe for God. And spending time with him helped me to grow and have a sense of awe for who God really is. And so one of the ways that we can experience what Paul is talking about here in Romans 11 is hanging out with people who have a a, a holy fear, a joy, a trembling, an understanding about the reality of God, and it impacts how they live every day, every night. And what they do with their time. So a holy fear is the second thing. Last thing um, comes out of verses 22 through 24. Did I make it through 21? Yeah. Uh, For if God did did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Don't take verse 21 as God wants to to get you. He's speaking to arrogant, prideful people who are thinking they're superior than the Jews. That's why he says verse 21. So if you're not in a place of arrogance, then then move past verse 21. If you're in a place of arrogance, that verse is for that. All right, let's look at 22 through 24. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, the Jews who didn't believe in, in, in the Messiah in the first century. But kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. There's there's a warning here to these arrogant Gentile Christians in first century Rome. Continue in kindness, in humility, in love for others, the kind of kindness that God has shown to you, that you've been grafted into this tree. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. There's a warning. Why does God speak like that? Because they are arrogant and prideful. That's why he's speaking that way. Verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. Israel, the Jews, they will come back if they don't persist. For God is able to graft them in again. Verse 24, after all, if you were cut off, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, something that you wouldn't normally do, if you're familiar with orchards and the grafting stuff, which I'm not, you wouldn't normally go get this wild tree and grafted in, but that's who you are, Gentiles. That's who I am. That's who most of, uh, I think there's only one or very few Jewish people here today. We are wild by nature, is what he's saying. And contrary to nature, we're grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Again, there's an anticipation here of a future day of Israel being grafted in to this tree. Now this Bad season, which continues to this day for the Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, has been prophesied to come about in Jeremiah 11. The Lord once called you, Israel, a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. Why did he set fire to it? Why were their branches consumed? Because they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah 
the, the Torah predicted it and described the kind of Messiah that was going to come. But when that Messiah came, they were expecting a different sort of Messiah, not one who would die on a cross, but one who would throw off the Roman Empire, uh, the, the, the wicked leaders of the Roman Empire, and, and usher in the kingdom of God right then and there. That's what they were expecting. So, we have a lot going on in this passage. As we finish up, the third thing I, I, I want to hit, we need God's grace. That's what we come to the Bible for. We need it for those who are skeptics or don't believe. They need godly envy. That's what Paul's praying for. We need a holy fear. We need a trembling. And then we need a unity for all of these different folks who are grafted in to this one beautiful olive tree. With all of these graftings, we need a Christian unity where we are unified around Jesus and the gospel and that we are thankful that we are part of that tree. A couple more words from Doug Moo, who has helped me so much to understand the book of Romans. He writes this. He says, The coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, did not involve ethnic subtraction as if Jews were now eliminated, but addition. So we have the remnant of Jews and we have the Gentile crown of this olive tree, but addition with Gentiles now being added to believing Jews. Paul's boundary for the people of God is a religious one, faith in Jesus Christ, not an ethnic one. It is about grace. It is not about race. He goes on, we must not become so focused on the theology of Paul's teaching here that we miss its purpose. The purpose here isn't to give us eschatology primarily. It's to criticize those of us who are Gentiles for arrogance toward believing and unbelieving Jews and to remind us that our own spiritual heritage is a Jewish one and to look at that root of the patriarchs. And by God's grace, we have been grafted in. There is a remnant of Jews to this day that believe, but every other nation, tribe, and tongue and people make up the crown of the tree, but there is a coming a day where that remnant is going to expand and the fullness of Israel will believe and this tree will be even more beautiful and glorious. And the scriptures end by asking us to pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray for that as we seek to be part of this beautiful tree. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace and mercy of God. We thank you that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is not based on race or where we are born. Lord, help us to be in awe of you. Help us to be thankful and appreciative, and to live with joy. Help our lives to be examples so that when people look at us, they would actually envy not us, but the God that we are in relationship with that has given us joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control and all of these things. Would you help us to bear that fruit and that those around us would envy not us for fleshly and worldly things, but simply because of our faith and relationship in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.